came against the Babylonians in that Persian Empire, conquered the Babylonians, and he was um, want to allow the Jews to go back home. Strange phenomenon in, in, in biblical history that this pagan king of Persia will look with favor upon the Jews to return to Jerusalem and reestablish their city and rebuild it and reestablish their worship. Ezra and Nehemiah were the prime movers of that reconstruction. Nehemiah for the purpose of rebuilding the walls, Ezra for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And so these these exiles came back, these refugees came back to Judah and to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and to reconstruct their nation, their city. And they started to work on the rebuilding of the temple, but it began to wane. The, the, pro, the uh, uh, progress of that, the building program began to wane, and so they ceased. And that's where Haggai comes in. This prophet Haggai was sent by God back to the city of Jerusalem to encourage the people to get on with the business of rebuilding the temple and returning the religion of monotheism to life. Now, the, the temple was to be the focal point of the life of that nation, really. The temple representing the presence of God was to be the focal point of life. And actually what is happening is they're to rebuild the temple because the whole life of this nation was to revolve around God himself in a kind of a theocracy so that God and worship of God was to be the focal point of, per of a person's life, the center point of a person's life. And so they started rebuilding the temple. But enthusiasm began to wane, and they began to drift away from the purpose of rebuilding the temple. So a few faithful ones remained on, but for the most part, the rest began to drift away. There are several reasons why they lost their enthusiasm. One was because of the opposition of neighboring um, nations, who did not want to see the Jews return and rebuild their nation. But for the most part, this enthusiasm waned, not because of outward opposition, but because of inward indifference. And there are several reasons why these folks no longer were excited about rebuilding the temple. One was because of their own personal comfort. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to get out there and, re and, and build a temple their love of ease, the claims of their domestic life. They say, well, we got families to take care of ourselves. We got our own houses to build. We got our own life to live. We got our own responsibilities to meet. And the greed of gain. Well, we gotta, get, we gotta make a living and a life and we don't have time to rebuild the temple. That'll come later. And so these exiles took to building their own houses and they became more interested in settling the land than in building the temple. And what you have here, and I want you to see this, what you have here is people re relegating God to a secondary place. Relegating God to a secondary place. Right now we have our own lives to live. 
Right now we have our own bills to pay. Right now we have our own houses to construct and our own children to care for. And so they begin to thrust God out on the periphery and shove him out to a secondary position. And the words of Haggai are the working out of this one idea. This is the idea, the thesis of the book of Haggai. And the idea is the unprofitable life on the whole and in the long run when you shove God to the outside. I need to say that again. The whole thrust of this book of Haggai is this unprofitable life that is the result of putting God in a secondary position. It's called practical atheism. Now we all know what atheism is. Atheism is to deny the existence of God. Practical atheism is to live as though he didn't exist. Now there's not a single person in this auditorium tonight who would stand up. I don't think there's anybody here. Maybe we can meet after it's over and talk it over, but I don't think there's anybody here who would stand up or say, I don't believe there is a God, but there's a lot of us who have relegated him to a secondary place and live as though he did not exist or that he, did, or that he was not important. And so Haggai comes with this message that the center of one's life is God and everything else must revolve around that. And God must be taken from the secondary and the peripheral and be placed in the center of your life. And if he is not, then there is this illustration of what that life is like. And that's what follows. First of all, that kind of life is a life of fruitless toil. Look at verse 6. That's where we're going to focus. You so much, but you harvest little. Fruitless toil. It's the picture of a person who harvests in a drought. He sows his seed, much seed, and he waits the long wait, and he comes to harvest and gets little. It's, it's the picture of a person who works all of his life and has little to show for it. It's the illustration of a person who labors and toils and has no evidence of his toil or labor. It's like the treadmill syndrome. Now, um, I understand that there are, new, you know, these, there are these treadmills now, these stair steps. There's some of these um, uh, exercise, what do they call these, these uh, uh, recreation centers and and uh, clubs where you can go and, and sit on a bicycle and there's a television there on the bicycle. You ride this bicycle stationary bike and watch television. Some even have VCRs. Now that's the way to live, brother. Just get on these treadmills or get on these stationary bikes. And you know, here's a guy on a stationary bike or a, or a you know, one of these step, what do you call them, steppers? Stair steppers, thank you. Where's my uh, Forrest Gump huh? <laughs> expert here? And these, these uh, stationary bikes, it's, it's that kind of syndrome. It's like going all out and getting nowhere is a life where God is relegated to a secondary position. 
Now let me ask you. Let me mention this. Let me say this. I want you to hear this. There is nothing more tragic than the contrast between what a man actually accomplishes in his life and what he planned to accomplish. Nothing more tragic than a person who has such dreams and plans, sows seed, puts his life into it, expects so much, has so many plans, and find that he didn't accomplish, he didn't get what he thought he would get out of it. A few um, years ago, I, um, it became a little bit of a concern of mine what to say when you go out and you talk to people. You know, I don't have any problem. We, we got a lot of training on what to talk about when you meet somebody who is not a Christian. You know, and we get these questions that we, diagnostic questions that we ask. But nobody told me what to say to a, to a person who, has, who, had, who was a Christian but who wasn't living for God and who had not, you know, had given up on the church and given up on prayer, etc. And I came across a sentence that I, uh, this will work. And so I decided I would try it. And I went out to visit this guy who, um, who was a Christian, but had given up on church, given up on the Lord, given up on prayer, just, just living, you know, a practical atheistic life. And I asked this question. It literally stunned him like a stun gun. I said, you're a Christian? Yeah, oh yeah, he said, I'm a Christian. I said, could I ask you a question? Yeah, uh, okay, he said, I said, are you getting out of your Christianity what you thought you would get out of Christianity when you became a Christian? Let me ask you that question. Are you getting out of your Christianity what you thought you would get out of it when you became a Christian? Well, let me give you the flip side of that question. Are you putting into the matter of the Christian life what you really intended to when you first walked the aisle, gave your life to Christ? That's a heavy-duty question. And it's the picture of a person who plants much and gets little, who harvests in a drought. For what he planned and what he was are drastically apart. All right? Second. This illustration of a godless life is, is, is this. It's a life of unsatisfied hunger and thirst. And so he says, you eat, but you're never satisfied. Sounds very familiar. Now, I know uh, that, that, you, that you've had this experience, that you were hungry for something, you didn't know what it was. And so you just ate a little of everything, see if you could find out what it was. <laughs> and, and so you ate, um, you know, this is testimony time. This is this is <laughs> this is confession. So you so you start out about five o'clock and you eat till ten, <laughs> trying to find something that would 
you know, satisfies a hunger and can't do it, never do it. And he says, you're thirsty, but, and you drink, but you never, get, you never drink enough to slake the thirst. Now, it's a whole lot like what we talked about this morning, this man Solomon, who found and came to this unsatisfying conclusion that you can have everything that the world offers and still never be satisfied with it, still be unfulfilled and unhappy. You, you, you have a hunger that just is never fed. Now, some questions. Are the objects to which you have given your life, are they, do they satisfy your desires? Question number two. Do the things for which you toil, do they fill you and fulfill you? Question number three. Do you always want just a little more? Malcolm Muggeridge, the great British believer found Christ writing a book on why there isn't one. Had this profound statement. He said the most terrible thing about materialism, more terrible than its proneness to violence is its boredom. And what he was saying is this. The worst thing about giving your life to things is, is that things are counterproductive. They don't satisfy. As a matter of fact, they bore you. Number, number three, this life that leaves God out is one of futile defenses. Now look what he says. Verse six. He says, you put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. Now you put on clothing as a defense against the biting wind and the cold. He says you put on clothing, but it's not a defense against the biting wind and cold. Now, notice the analogy. The analogy is this, that if you shove God out to a secondary place, to a secondary position, you have no defenses against the storms that come. What are you going to do when depression comes sweeping in like some chilling breath if you have relegated God to a secondary position? What are you going to do when the storm of sorrow comes wave upon wave? What are you going to do when you're tempted to sin? My wife would, came home at lunch and she was um, telling me about her class this morning. She loves her class. I mean, every year I've got the best class. That's what she says. Every year I've got the best. And she was telling me how these precious young ladies in her class were sharing with her about the lesson they had about sexual purity and how they had uh, praying and, 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 and asking God to help them always to remain like God wants them to be until they're married. And how thrilled she was to listen to them testify to that. How are you, if you, if you shove God out of your life and that temptation comes rushing in, what defense do you have against it? Um, what defense do you have against the storms that come in life? 
And I got to looking at this, and I thought to myself, it's a cold life without God. What defense do you have against um, stress and worry? Old um, Campoli, you remember his book, uh, Seize the Day, Carte, what is it, Carpe Diem? Tells about this friend of him, his was riding on this. Anybody a Campolo expert here? Tell me what they it, it, the was riding on a bus in India. You know, on the buses in India, you've seen pictures of them are jammed, crowded, full of people, and luggage and furniture and animals. And he said they were traveling, going across the country. And he, this guy looked across the aisle. There's this old man. He had a package, obviously very precious to him. And he'd put, he'd put it up on the rack over his head. But, and he would kind of nod, nod off to sleep. And he'd wake up and check to see if somebody had stolen his package. And they'd drive a little further and he'd nod off. And then he'd jerk and look to see if his package was gone. Finally... He woke after a little cat nap and looked, and sure enough, it was. And for a moment, there was this look of horror on his face. Somebody had stolen his package. Then he just leaned back and went sound asleep and delicious sleep for the thing that had encumbered him with all this stress and anxiety. Now that it was gone, he could sleep all night. And so Haggai says, what defense do you have against anxiety if you've shoved God out to the, to the borders of your life? Because if God is not in the center of your life, you have no defenses. It's a cold life without God. Number four, this godly life is a life of fleeting possessions. He says it's like putting money in, a, in your purse and finding out later you had a hole in it. Boy, that does sound familiar. I mean, it's like putting your money in your pocket and it just falls out to you when, you're not, when you don't notice. It's like the guy that I got behind one time checking out at a, at a, at a department store and he reached in his pocket to get his money and found out he had a hole in it. His money was gone. It's like, you know what he's saying? He's saying when you shove God out to the periphery and you put him out here in a secondary position, when the crunch time comes, you have no resources. When crunch time comes, you have empty pockets. It's like drawing from an empty well. It's like that parable Jesus told about when, when the man came at midnight and knocked on his friend's door and he went to the door and he said, you know, friend, you know, I, 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 I'd like three loaves for a friend of mine has come and I don't have anything to set before him. It's like I feel, that, I feel like that so, so often that there, I have so little to set before one, so little resources. If God is not in the center of your life, what resources do you have? And so J. Wallace Hamilton tells about the Christmas party they had in this little village every year. And Santa Claus came. And Santa Claus always had gifts for the kids. And there was a 
in the city what Hamilton called the village idiot. A, a man retarded. He had the body of an adult and the mind of a baby, a child. And so when Santa Claus came, he always got excited. He was always there to get his present from Santa Claus, this village idiot. And so somebody decided they'd play a cruel, cruel joke on him. And so they wrapped a package and put his name on it for Santa Claus to give. And while he was handling out the presents, that package was laying over there reserved for the village idiot. And finally, when it was time for his package, Santa Claus handed it to him. And he was so excited, he began to rip the, the, the beautiful package away, the, the bows, and open the box, and to his horror, it was an empty box. Horrible trick to play on the village idiot. But said Wallace Hamilton, that's the trick that's played on us who push God out to the exit side and what is left is nothing but an empty box, no resources. Now here are some lessons that are timely, I think. Practical lessons for something. I don't know what it says here. What does it say? Practical lessons with what? Permanent value. Number one, difficult duties should be faced courageously and without delay. Now he says in verse 7, consider your ways, and he says it again, he says it twice, consider your ways. An unexamined life is an unworthy life. Consider your ways. Difficult duties should be faced courageously and without delay. If God says, build my house, build his house. Second, whatever you have, you have been given. Whatever you have, you have been given. I heard about a reporter who went to interview an entrepreneur and he said to the entrepreneur, well, give me, tell me the secret how you got all this money you got. He said, well, I'm glad you asked. Great story. He said, when my wife and I married, we had zero. We had nothing. In fact, we had five cents to our name. I went down and bought an apple with that nickel and I shined it up and sold it for a dime. And then I took the dime and I went down and bought two apples and shined them up and sold them for 20 cents. And the reporter saying, man, what a marvelous story. And so he was saying excitedly, then what? Then what? And the guy said, well, then my father-in-law died and left us $20 million. Now, <laughs> you... you, you you, you, get, you get all excited about what, you know, like this is, this, I'm a self-made man and all. Everything you have, God has given you. Why would you shove God to the secondary place in your life when everything you have is the result of His love and grace? Third practical lesson. We are not to live 
in fine dwellings and allow God's house to lie in ruin. Now, I'm not talking about a church building. I'm talking about the fact that we're not to live for ourselves and let God go begging. Number five, or four, we need to cultivate an inward simplicity. An inward simplicity is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And if one cultivates an inward simplicity, he will practice an outward simplicity. Now let me tell you what that means. It means that we buy things if we practice an outward simplicity. We buy things for their value rather than their status. And we tr stop trying to impress people with our possessions and we begin to impress them with our lives. And we begin to develop a habit of giving things away if we practice an outward simplicity so that when we become attached to material possessions, we take it on ourselves to give it away to somebody who needs it. That's the development of an inward simplicity and the practice of an outward one. And that's what he's driving at in the book of Haggai. And then number four, if natural... Um, material possessions and considerations, material considerations crowd out God and your home. It has cost you too much. If material considerations crowd out God and your family, it's cost you too much. Now let me take a shot at Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. Head coach, former head coach, the Super Bowl champion, Dallas Cowboys. Earned over a million dollars in one year. Known for his habit of carrying $100 bills around and handing them out like ones. Um, he achieved his accomplishment not just by focusing on money and winning. But that was the main thing. It cost him something. When he took over the Cowboys in 1989, Johnson divorced his wife of 26 years, explaining that he needed to focus completely on his job. His $50,000 speaking fee dissuades any who would desire his presence at social functions. His drive to be the best almost completely alienated him from meaningful relationships. And this is what his son said, quote, I don't want to make him sound shallow, but dad has his work, then he has his private life. He's got football, my brother Chad and me, and his girlfriend Rhonda. He's got a few friends, very few, and he's got his fish, I like the fish, but not as much as he does. I guess when you think about it, the fish are easy. They're not demanding like a dog, say, that might need his time or that might want 
to be petted every now and then. Man, what a close-up view of a father from the eyes of his son. For when, when you stop the construction of the temple and it costs you your relationship with God and your family, you've paid far too great a price. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'll give us the wisdom and the grace to put first things first. For I pray in Jesus' name. I want to ask you to give consideration to... That'll jolt you a little. To this invitation. Number one, for you to give Jesus Christ your life. The surrender of one's heart and life and will to, the, to Jesus Christ is the beginning place of what it means to be a Christian. The surrender of your life to Him. Perhaps God would lead you to place your life in a fellowship, in a believing church, in a serving church. The discipline, what that means to, 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 to become incorporated into the, to the ministry of a fellowship, a church. Or maybe you'd want tonight, tonight to, to take measures that would get the temple started back in reconstruction. For whatever reason, you have, you have ceased majoring on major things. Get that right. While we stand to sing, I invite you to come.